Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored, The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to pick up today in verse 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul is going to change gears and we're going to be talking about a subject that none of us like, but it's the next part of Scripture and we go verse by verse. And that is the terrible sin of immorality. He's going to shift gears. He's going to move from the sin of demanding your own rights now, which is the root, by the way, of all sin, right into the area of the subject of immorality. And we've been looking since chapter 5 at the consequences of fleshly sin. And to say it over and over again is not enough, I don't think, to remind you that the church of Corinth had chosen rather than attach themselves to Jesus Jesus, you're all I want. Instead of having that attitude, they attach themselves to fleshly living. They attach themselves to preachers. They attach themselves to their own desires and lust and everything else. And it was devastating what happened within the church. In chapter 5, we saw some of the consequences now of that fleshly living. We saw the sin of incest, which was a man living with his father's wife. It was a terrible sin within the church. But not only that, we saw the sin of indifference. The church had grown so calloused, they wouldn't even deal with the sin. That was just as bad as the man's sin itself. And then we came into chapter 6. We saw that they were suing one another over matters that they could not solve themselves. The Apostle Paul said, you know what? You can be the smallest of law courts. As an individual, you have the Holy Spirit living in you, and you have the Word of God to renew your mind. You can make the decision when you have disputes with one another in the body of Christ. Don't drag your, your situations before the pagans of the world as if the unrighteous would do. Don't do that. That's what he begins to talk to them about in chapter 6. The sin of demanding your own right. It was legally okay to sue somebody. But what's legally right is not the last word to a believer. It's what does God say. We don't live like the world is. We've been changed. We live God's way. We saw the problem. The misunderstanding, the shame, the defeat, the question, and the characteristics of those who demand their own rights. Paul is again trying to tell them, we are not like we used to be. We have been changed by being saved. We live God's way now. We don't live the world's way. And before we go any further, I want you to turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Paul wrote this epistle from prison. I want you to see again, just from maybe from another perspective. Maybe it will help you understand what he's doing here in Corinthians. I don't know but that we are not the same anymore. We've, we've been saved out of the world's way of doing things into God's way of doing things. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. Tremendous picture to remind us of what happened at salvation. 
He says, for he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, when you bowed and put your faith into Jesus Christ, something mysterious and eternal took place. He says he delivered us from the domain of darkness. It's very important to understand this word deliver. It doesn't necessarily mean to be delivered from the presence of something, but it does always mean to be delivered from the power of something. Matter of fact, the idea is someone reaching out to rescue you and draw you to themselves in the midst of the terrible, raging storm that's going on around you. The illustration that comes to me that I think is the best is being caught in the current of a river. And perhaps you've been wading in the shallow waters and you shouldn't even have been in the water, but you got over a little too far and somehow you fell off the ledge into deeper water and the current grabs you and sweeps you away. Suddenly you're helpless. You cannot swim. You cannot do anything. You're bobbing up and down in the water. The water's sucking you down up underneath it and you can do nothing. And when you come up gasping for air, you cry out, help me, help me. And somebody hears your cry and reaches down and grabs you and you cannot do a thing. And he draws you to himself and lifts you out of the power of the raging current of that river. And there you lay on the banks of that river in the arms of the one who has saved you. You're still in the presence of the river but you've been delivered from its raging power. That's the word real may that's used there. The Apostle Paul says we've been delivered from a domain of darkness. Doesn't mean that darkness is not still around us. Doesn't mean it doesn't rage and roar in our ears, but it means we've been delivered from its power. Not its presence, but its power. We were out on the San Marcos River several years ago. I've done some dumb things in my life. I've done some stupid things in my life. There's a difference. This was a dumb thing. I'd never done it before and didn't know better. <laughs> I was getting my instructors in the American Camping Association. Had to go through all kinds of survival training, etc. Had to canoe for several hundred miles for a five-day trip in order to pass the course to finally be an instructor in the American Camping Association. Well, we had canoed for four days on the San Marcos River. A lot of white water, but not really that bad. I was in the back of the canoe where I should have been. I'm as big as an elephant, and the guy in front of the canoe weighed about as much as my right leg, and so he needed to be in the front. You don't put the weight in the front, you put the weight in the back. So for four days on all the whitewater canoeing we had done, we had done very well. And of course, you, you start learning these things. When the current picks up, it'll go into a V, and the first thing you do is you head the front of that canoe right into that V, and that's the way you go through the current of any stream. Don't ever go crosswise. Don't try to get a, stay right in that V. And they taught us all these kinds of things. Well, on the last day of that instructor's course, he said, Wayne, you need to learn to, to get in the front of the canoe. Well, what he should have done is gotten somebody heavier than me and put him in the back. But we didn't have anybody heavier than me. <laughs> so he put me in the front and put a lighter person in the back. We got on the Guadalupe River. Uh, unbeknownst to us, it was at flood stage. I used to say 1,500 cubic feet per second. Someone corrected me. It's more like 15,000 cubic feet per second. Very dangerous situation. I know better now. If I'd go back and do it now, it'd be stupid. Then I did not know any better, so it was just ignorant. It was just dumb. We got on that river, had to go 25 miles on that river. I've never seen white water like that. I've never seen a river rage like that river. Well, we got about a mile down. It was pretty calm for a long time. I thought, this is nothing to this. All of a sudden, you begin to hear it. Have any of y'all ever done this, know what I'm talking about? You can hear the roar up ahead of you. 
And you know good and well what that is. The land beginning to dip and the river's fixing to go down and you're hearing the roar of that current and that, those white water rapids. Well, we got into the first one. We made it somehow through it. I don't know how in the world we made it through it because it swept. We didn't even have time to hardly maneuver the canoe. I remember, I'd been used to being in the back. Now I'm in the front. Well, we go down. We hit the second one, and it just seemed like it was one after another, after another, after another. Later on, we found how far the land had dropped in that 25-mile stretch, and it was incredible. But in the second one, we hit it cockeyed. We sort of hit it crazy. We didn't go into the V like you're supposed to. We went in sideways. Well, immediately, we knew we were in trouble, and the last thing I remember is being thrown out of the canoe. It was in April, and it was very, very cold water. I had a life vest on, which was probably suitable for somebody about 5'1". It weighed 100 pounds. And so it barely kept my nose out of the water. The last time I saw the guy who was in the canoe with me, he was hanging on a rock. That's all I could see, him grasping a rock. And I, I didn't even see the canoe. I just saw it being banged off of rocks. I noticed something that the water was so deep, I didn't realize that in the rapids, the water could be that deep. I never touched anything except bouncing off of rocks. And suddenly, fear got all over me because the coldness of that water began to make me paralyzed. I couldn't move. I began to get weaker and weaker. I could hardly even raise my arms. The water was so cold, and it was sweeping me down. We had safety guys. They'd, they'd go first. They had life rafts to throw out to you. But where, I, where we fell out, it was so wide they couldn't get the life rafts to us, and so I went on. The river sucked me down, carried me for probably a mile to a mile and a half. I could not do one single thing. I just remember a limb hanging out over the, I saw it coming, and I thought to myself, if I can just get my arms up and grab that limb, I've got help here. And I remember going under it and grabbing the limb, and the current of the water carried me around to the eddy water, and I was able to roll up on the bank and I laid there for over an hour before they finally got to me. We had to beat the canoe, all the dents out of the canoe, even for us to finish the trip. I couldn't imagine getting back into it and knowing we had another 20-some miles to go. But the idea, real May, of being delivered from the raging power of something, not necessarily from its presence. Now, you've got to understand what he's saying here. We have been delivered from its power. We have been rescued. He drew us to himself. And now we are to bask in his grasp because he's the one who's delivered us from its power. The word domain there, he says he's delivered us from the domain of darkness, is the word exousia, and it means the right and the might of something. The right and the might, the power, the authority of darkness. We've been delivered from its power. And it says he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The word transferred, methistano, is the word that means to be moved from one place to another. Now, again, the illustration of the river. You're taken out of the current and put over here on the side. And it says, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And the word kingdom has the idea, it's the territory where he rules and where he reigns. I've been delivered out of the power of darkness, and I have been put over into the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to where his authority rules and reigns in my life. And that word kingdom not only means that, it has, it's also in its meaning, all the rights and the privileges afforded to us in Christ's rule and authority, both now and forevermore. We have been delivered from the raging current of the penalty and power of sin, not from its presence. That will take place one day. And we are now in the arms of the one who rules and reigns in our life. 
And as long as we stay in his arms and choose not to roll back into the river, we're going to be able to enjoy the privileges of what that means in our life. That's the whole key. The Corinthian church, they didn't enjoy it on the bank. They wanted to go back to the river. How stupid can we be? That's what sin is. It's almost like the Apostle Paul is saying, what are you people doing? Suing each other. I delivered you from that kind of lifestyle. Committing incest. I delivered you from that kind of lifestyle. Now immorality. I delivered you from that kind of lifestyle. What are you doing? You're only protected as you live up under the one who delivered you from the power of sin. Well, go back to 1 Corinthians 6 with that in mind. Understand what he's doing here. These Corinthians were just hard-headed. They wouldn't listen. They had refused to grow up, had little pacifiers in their mouth. They're still in the nursery. They won't grow up. They attach themselves to anything they can see, touch, and feel. They don't realize their only protection is when they attach themselves to the one who has delivered them. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. Here's the raging current that had once sucked them under. This is what they've been saved out of. He says in verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Here's what they came out of. The, the, here's the raging current of that river. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. And I'm glad I'm just reviewing here because I don't have to go back to those words again. Nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, but look at our rescue in verse 11. Look what he says. Here's our rescue. Here's when we were, he reached down and took us out of that current. He said, and such were some of you. And that word such refers to the lifestyle that they used to live. He said, you used to be in that current, but I delivered you, took you out from its power. Then he goes on, he says, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of of God. Now I want you to see something here. Oh, you cannot see it in the translation. You're going to miss it. When he says you were washed, that's not a good translation. It should be you washed yourselves. And the word for wash is that external washing. And he's not talking about baptism. He's talking about the fact you made a choice. It's aorist middle. The next two verbs are aorist passive. Aorist passive, something happened to me. Aorist middle, I was the one who initiated that action. He says, you washed yourselves of that sin. You came out of it. You made a choice to turn to me. You see, that's what repentance is all about. Now, cleansing, when it comes to our position in Christ, cleansing of sin, that's inward, and God always does that. Always. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us. But in many times we're told to wash ourselves, cleanse yourselves, it says, I believe, in the book of James. And what he's talking about is externally, turn away from the sinful life that you're living. Get out of it. And then he takes over and he cleanses from within. And then he goes on to say, and you were sanctified. The word sanctified picks up the internal cleansing. The word means something was unusable. It was in the mud and the mire, but someone reached down and picked it up, washed it cleansed it and made it available for a brand new purpose. You were sanctified, heiress passive. You were justified. Justified means you were acquitted because of you used to be guilty. But when you chose to come out of that lifestyle and you put your faith into Christ, Christ took over and he cleansed you from within, set you apart by putting his life in you, justified you and acquitted you of the guilt. No longer is the guilt tagged to your name because Jesus took your guilt. Jesus took your sin and died on a cross for you. 
And he goes on and says, and all this is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. All of it was concerning Jesus and what he came to do and who he was. And it was by the means of the Holy Spirit of God. So what he's saying is, hey folks, why would you go back to the very thing you've been delivered out of? It doesn't make any sense. That's his whole chastisement to the church of Corinth. Quit living as if you've never been saved. If you're saved, you've come out of all of that. We've been rescued from the raging current of sin. We consciously turned away from the old way of life and we turned to him. It's never what you turn from, it's who you turn to, but there is a turning. And that's what repentance is all about. In the context of 1 Corinthians 6, again, Paul is saying, guys, what are you doing You've gone back to the current. You roll back into the river. You're not living under the authority of the one who has delivered you from its power. And he moves now to the sin of immorality. You realize that all sin has as its center the middle letter of the word sin. It's I. It's self. I'm going to live for myself. Whether it be an incest, which is a specific kind of sin, whether it be an indifference, which is the apathy that comes because of sin, whether it be in suing somebody and demanding my own rights, that's another kind of sin, or whether it be in the general category of immorality, it all comes back, I'm going to do it my way, God don't call me, I'll call you. Well, I kind of changed my outline because when I first started off, I said in chapter 5 it's immorality and indifference, but then I realized he's covering it in a much broader way here, so I'm going to go back. Incest, chapter 5. Indifference, chapter 5. Chapter 6, demanding your own rights, which suing one another, which is, which is pagan and is wrong. Solve your differences within, within your own group. And then finally, in chapter 6, immorality. So there's three things I want you to see about the sin of immorality this morning. It's going to carry us right on into chapter 7 later on. We'll, it'll be a while on this subject. I don't choose to stay there a long time. It's just a lot of verses we got to deal with. First of all, the choosing immoral sin is harmful. And Paul wants them to see this. If you're going to choose the sin of immorality, you're choosing to harm yourself. And he's going to show you what that harm is going to be. He says in verse 12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now that very term lawful gives the idea of freedom, something that's it's, it's, it's okay to do. The Apostle Paul is the champion of the message of grace. If anybody in the New Testament preached grace, Paul did. Our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Listen to him in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. He said, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. He says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law anymore. You are under grace. Paul preached that all believers in Christ are not under the condemning penalty or power of the law anymore. They're now under grace, enabled by him. We are free. Paul preached this. All things are lawful. But now listen to me. Because we're free, that freedom never means license. Because I'm free under grace does not mean I'm free to be what I want to be. That's not at all the meaning of what, what Paul preached. As a matter of fact, in Galatians 5 and another verse, he says in verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. 
freedom that we have in Christ is not the right to do as you please, it's the power to do as you should. Now the Apostle Paul has come to realize something about the Corinthian believers. Most scholars think, and I'm not a scholar, but I, I agree with them. <laughs> Most people think that this statement, all things are lawful to me, was a statement they would make in everyday living to justify what they wanted to do. All things are lawful to me. All things are lawful to me. I'm under grace. I can do what I want to do. Party hardy. Let's just go have fun. I'm, we're under grace, under grace, under grace. All things are lawful to me. He says, it's kind of like the, the, the Christians in Rome when they said in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Do you know anybody that way? That gets into teaching of grace and just thinks they can do whatever they want to do? I mean, hot dog. I mean, no, no sin that we could ever commit is going, to be, is going to be in any way affecting us eternally. And we know that because of grace of what Christ has done. So some people interpret that as, whew, isn't it fun to be under grace? I don't have to worry about all this stuff anymore. Just do whatever comes naturally and everything will be fine. That was the attitude of the Corinthian church. When Paul spoke of being free, you've got to understand what he meant by that. He meant that we're free from works righteousness. No longer did righteousness come by means of the flesh. It never did come by means of the flesh. And we're set free from the striving part of our life. Now it comes enabled by the grace. God lives in us to enable us to be what he commands us to be. But the Corinthian believers had perverted this truth. They were living the way they wanted to live, suing one another, living immoral. All things are lawful to me. All things are lawful to me. So Paul, knowing this, does not budge. Now I want to show you how he hits it head on. He just takes the same phrase that they've been walking around saying and using in his license. He takes that same phrase and applies it to himself. This great freedom preacher, this great preacher of grace understands its truth. They do not. So he takes it. He doesn't change it so that they'll change. Oh, no. He keeps it there, but he puts integrity to it. He says, all things are lawful to me. The word lawful there means permissible. In other words, all things are permissible to me. There's no sin that any of us can commit that's not already paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. So Paul just takes that statement and says, hey, you're right. All things are lawful to me too. He applies it to himself. But the fact that sin is forgiven never gives us the right to do it. And listen to me. Sin is never lawful and it's always painful. I'm free to make my choices. Yes, sir, I'm free. But there are consequences to every choice that I make. Sin is never profitable. He says all things are lawful to me, but not all things are profitable. Now I want you to notice something here. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are profitable. He didn't put the to me on the end of it. Did you notice that? He says, all things are lawful to me, but not all things are profitable. You realize what he's doing here? He's speaking of himself. Oh, yes, I'm free to make my choices. But when he looks at the consequence, he realizes he's not the only one that's going to suffer. Because when you choose to sin under the, the, the perverted view that grace is licensed, you don't realize what you've just done. It's the Corinthians didn't realize what they had just done. Not only will you suffer, you're going to cause somebody else to suffer and it's going to continue to go on that way. He says, all things are lawful to me, but not all things are profitable. He leaves it open-ended because he wants them to understand. Now, the word profitable there means advantageous, beneficial. Matter of fact, if you want to just jot a few verses down, I'll show you where it's found other places and you get an immediate idea what the word means in Corinthians, first and second. 1 Corinthians 7, 35, he uses the word. 
And this I say for your own benefit. That's what he says. He says not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is seemly. He goes on and carries out his context. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 33, he uses the same word. I just want you to understand it. He says, just as I also please men in all things, not seeking my own profit. Again, that which is advantageous, that which is beneficial. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 7. But to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. What? For the common good. In other words, when we get down to the gifts, you're going to find out that the bottom line of all the gifts, if they're going to be called a gift, they must somehow edify and build up everybody in the body of Christ. Not just a single person. So again, the idea of beneficial, advantageous here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 10, it says, And I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage. Again, the word is used. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. He was in a situation where they were accusing him of not being an apostle, and he had to come out and, and tell them some things. He said, this is not going to be profitable, but I, I, I don't have any other choices right here at this matter. So you see the idea, all things are lawful to me, but not all things are beneficial. Not all things are advantageous. I'm free to make my choices but I better be careful how I make these choices. Yes, I'm under grace. Yes, I'm free under grace. But that's not license to go back to the very thing grace has delivered me from. Paul says that even though we are free, even, our, even though our sin has been paid for on the cross, we must make our choices carefully as those who belong to Christ. Sin is very much devastating to us. It's never advantageous. Well, he continues by showing what is the devastating effect of sin. Now, here's the whole picture of what he's saying. He applies the truth to himself. He says, you say all things are lawful to you. Ha, I say all things are lawful to me, but I know something evidently you don't. All things are not profitable to me. In other words, when I make my choices, I realize I better be attached to Christ because if I attach myself to anything else, it's going to bring a devastating result. Here it is. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Paul knows something. Paul knows something that evidently the Corinthians had forgotten or been deceived in that area. He knows that if he would foolishly take the truth of the freedom and grace and use it as a license to sin, he knows that he would become then the slave of that choice that he just made. He knows that. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm not going to be a part of that kind of living. The only kind of living I'm going to be a part of is being a slave to Jesus Christ. That's the only way. And I'm going to make all my choices under him. I'm going to make all my choices in him. I'm going to make all my choices based on what he says because if I use my freedom to make choices in order to sin, I have just done a stupid thing. I now am the slave no longer of Christ. I'm the slave of the sin that I've chosen to do. Now, he knows that. The Corinthians have already entered into that kind of living and can't even see it. He's trying to show. The subject that he's dealing with is immorality. So what he's saying is to foolishly use the freedom of Christ that we have, of grace, to become a license to live in any way immorally is something that's very devastating, very harmful to the Christian life. Romans 6 and verse 16, he says, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death 
or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Now, folks, listen. The harm of choosing immorality. You may even use that freedom in Christ to say you are free under grace to do what you want to do. I was reading an article the other day about an area of immorality, and it was saying everybody does this, and it's a, certainly a normal thing, and it should ne never be looked at as if it's bad. And I thought to myself, how stupid the world really is. And Paul is saying, yeah, you're under grace, but buddy, you better make your decisions attached to Christ because they will make you slaves of that which you choose in the long run. And he says, I'll have no part of it. I understand what you're saying, but you're wrong in what you're saying because you don't realize it's not only going to hurt you, it's going to hurt everybody around you. It's going to affect you for all of eternity. You know, the story's told of a little boy. He had a pair of britches on that were willed to him by his brother, but he wasn't as big as his brother, so his pants were too big for him, so he had to have a pair of suspenders even to hold them up. He's on his bicycle. He's out in the middle of the, in the country where you go down a path to find a dirt road, to find a gravel road, to find a paved road. To, you know, that's how far back he lives. He's down at the little service station, the only thing around that he even got a walls to it beside the one or two homes in the area, a little service station there that everybody goes and buys their groceries from time to time. And a man pulls in one day in one of these big, nice cars. Maybe it's a Lexus or something like that. And it's got even the computerized stuff on it that can make your seat turn and, be, and move around and move up and all this kind of stuff. And this little boy is sitting there looking at that car. He's thinking, whoa, that is nice. That is really nice. The man comes out and sees the little boy looking at his car. He says, mister, can I look at this car? I've never seen a car as nice as this. My daddy's got an old pickup, but it's about 25 years old. I'd love to see this car. And he walked over and opened the door. He said, son, come here, son. He put his hands on the seats and they were leather. And he looked up and all oh, the smell of the car on the inside was so nice. A little different than the pickup his daddy owned. He looked and walked around. He opened up the hood and showed him the big computerized engine that's inside that thing. And that little boy was just awestruck. And he, was, he came back to his bicycle, which was parked right behind the car. And the fellow said, well, I got to go now. And he gets in his car. And the little boy was bending over, looking at the license plate. And all of a sudden, the car just took off. Man's riding down the road. Finally gets off that dirt road, gets on a gravel road. Finally gets on a paved road. He's just, boy, enjoying himself. Puts it over on cruise, turns the radio on, looks up in the rearview mirror. And here comes that little boy right behind him on that bicycle. He's thinking to himself, good night, I live. I'm doing 75 miles an hour. That little boy is right behind me on that bicycle. I have never seen anybody ride a bicycle like that. Well, he goes on down the road a little bit. He can't stand it. He has to stop. He stops. And when he stops, all of a sudden, he sees that little boy go, shoot, just shoot by. Must be 100 miles an hour. He said, good night. That's a world record. Nobody can ride a bicycle that fast. Sits there for a second. All of a sudden, here comes the little boy back, backwards. Shoo, goes back the other way. He said, how did he do that? And finally, after... Several times of that, the little boy just spills out in the road, and the man runs back and says, Son, I've, I've never, are you okay? He said, Yes, sir. But if you'll just let me get your suspender off your bumper, I think everything will be all right. <laughs> be real careful what you attach yourself to by the choices you make, even when you use the excuse that you're under grace. Because what's meant to hold things up just might be devastating in the long run. That's the first thing he wants them to see. Choosing immorality is going to be harmful. No matter whatever kind it is, it's going to be harmful to you and to others around you. But the second thing we see about immorality is choosing immorality is demeaning. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. 
It demeans the very purpose that God has for the body now and also for all of eternity. It absolutely demeans everything that, listen, our bodies are a part of redemption. They're included in what happened when we got saved. Not just the inside of us, but all of us is included. And Paul says, this is so demeaning. He says in verse 13, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. And then in verse 14, now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Again, nothing is more demeaning to the body, which is a part of redemption, than when we choose the sin of immorality. Paul points to the truth that our bodies belong to God. We can't do with them as we please. Now he starts with an illustration. He says, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Now the stomach and food were made for each other. You don't believe that? <laughs> really, it was. <laughs> Food is there for the stomach. You didn't have a stomach, you wouldn't need food. If you have a stomach, you need food. I mean, the two go together. It's a biological relationship that they have, a functional part of the body, not something that's eternal, at best temporary. But the food and the, and the stomach are made for each other. Now, why in the world would Paul bring this up? Evidently, they were using this as their excuse to live immorally. Well, look, the stomach is for the food, so the body it's for, for sex. In other words, hey, relationship, we're made this way, aren't we? And so immorality must be our. I had a young people come to me one day, and he said, hey, God made me this way. And I said, no, he didn't. Sin made you that way. And what you call one thing, God calls another. And sex is a biological function, yes. But just like eating is a biological function, it's temporary at best. And the body is not made for that temporary function. The body has much more of an eternal purpose to it. Stupid logic, stupid logic. They say, <laughs> stomach made for food, body made for sex, got to have it. I can just live the way I want it because that's the way God made me. Now one day I'm going to be in heaven and it won't make any difference. And that was the kind of logic that had gotten into the Corinthian church. We're not made for temporary biological functions. Now, they're important in their proper perspective, in the boundaries that God gives to us in his word, but that's not what the body is made for. He says in verse 13, but God will do away with both of them. I guarantee you, you can go to a dead corpse and try to feed it, and it's just not interesting. You know, I love a New York strip. Do you like a New York strip, say? I think they're the worst for you. They'll kill you. About three of them will put you under the ground. But I just love them. I guess that's why, because they taste so good. Man, just think of one right now. Just think of a big whole plate full of one. Big old baked potato with butter. <laughs> Let's leave that alone. <laughs> I haven't had breakfast either. <laughs> but I, I just love one of those. But I guarantee you, and then when I die, you try it. When I die, by the way, I want, and when I die, if I beat you guys and get good in heaven before you do, I want it to be fun. Would you all make sure that happens? Matter of fact, and, and just get a, go over to the local restaurant, pick your choice, go, Mike Trussell, any of them, just pick your choice and get the biggest steak you can find. So I'm going to see if he's right. And walk over and set that steak on my chest. And I guarantee you, I'm not even going to drool. Because God's going to do away with that one day. That's a biological temporary function. And the body's not made for that function. That function is, is what helps the body while it's here on this earth. But the body has an eternal 
purpose, and that's what he's bringing out. He goes on. He says, yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now, there are two statements there. The body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. All right, first of all, the body is for the Lord. Look over in verse 19. Now, drop down to verse 19. We'll get to this, but you're seeing now why that verse is where it is. Verse 19, we're not quite there yet, but we'll go ahead and look at it. He says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you're not your own? Verse 20, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You see, the body's for the Lord. That's where he came to dwell. If you want to find the temple on earth where God dwells, look at a Christian, because his body is the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. So the, the body is for the Lord. Give him the proper estimation of, the wor- of his worth in your body. Glorify God in your body is what he's saying. And so therefore, there's a present purpose for the body. The body is the actual place for where it's indwelt by the Spirit of God. You can't use his temple to do with as you please. You've got to th- step back and realize there are more important things than just temporary, functional, biological relationship. There's an eternal thing here, and the body is for the Lord. To subject our bodies to sexual immorality is to demean the very purpose of the body. Now, when it comes to, to sexual relations inside of a marriage, that's a beautiful thing. and That's within the bounds of what God has. But you don't step out of those boundaries. Grace enables us freedom within the boundaries of who Christ is and what Christ says. Outside of that, you get into things that demean the very purpose of the body. So it has a very present purpose. He lives in it, and the the body is for the Lord. But secondly, he says, and the Lord is for the body. Verse 13. Now, God's going to do something with this body one day. I know some of us wonder. (laughs) I can't wait to have a glorified body one day. I hope we have basketball during that time. I'd like to dunk the ball one time with a glorified body. Would that not be incredible? We're going to have a glorified body. This body is, has a purpose to it. It's eternal. Not only is, he, is it for the Lord now to live in, but he's for it. In other words, it's going to, he's going to do something with the body one day. How do you know that's what he's talking about, Wayne? We'll read verse 14. He says, now God has not only raised the Lord And by the way, he's going to tell you in chapter 15, if you only believe in the spiritual resurrection of Christ and not the bodily resurrection of Christ, you don't even believe the gospel and you're not saved. (laughs) You've got to believe that he bodily resurrected because he is the first fruits for all of us. And what's going to happen to our body? He's going to raise it. He says, but will also raise us up through his power. Just as Jesus was raised up from the dead, we're going to be raised up from the dead one day. Look over in chapter 15 and verse 20 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 15 and verse 20. We see where Christ was raised from the dead and what happened as a result of that. Chapter 15 and verse 20. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, Adam, by a man Christ also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. There is an order to this. Christ went first. I love this. There's nothing I ever had to go through in life that he hadn't been already in front of me. It says, but, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father 
when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. So the first fruits, what that means is he set the pattern for all of those who are in him. As he raised from the dead bodily, we will raise from the dead bodily. Our bodies will be raised from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50, drop on down and you see again then how we're going to be changed. He was changed. We're going to be changed the same way. It says in verse 50, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And you think about perishable, our bodies are perishable. They're corrupting. That's what it means. And we can't inherit something that's imperishable. We've got to be chained for that world that God has for us. Verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. I found out one time what twinkling of an eye meant when I threw my garage door back in anger and it jumped the track and came back and almost knocked me into next year. The piece fell down and you know, I found out what a moment in twinkling of an eye was like. I couldn't even move. It happened so fast. <laughs> well, anyway, before you can blink. <clears throat> Verse 23. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. In other words, this mortal body is going to have to be changed to become immortal. Verse 54. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable. In other words, when that happens. And this mortal will have put on immortality. Then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, he says. Where is your victory? Oh, death. Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, folks, I want to tell you something. One day, if I die before Jesus comes again, my body will be in the ground, but my spirit's going to be with the Lord. How do we know that? 2 Corinthians 5 says to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. No such thing as a soul sleep. The word of sleep always attaches itself to the body. What do you do when you get tired? You lay down. What do you do? Go to sleep. But what do you do after you sleep for a while? You get up. It's a picture of what's going to happen to the body. It's always the body the word of sleep is attached to. And one day, if I go before Christ comes and you go before Christ comes, we'll be up in heaven enjoying him. And one day it'll come that time, the rapture of the church, when God takes that church up. You don't believe in the rapture. Well, I'm so sorry. You stay here. We're going with the rest of them. And when the Lord has the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18, I don't see how any clearer you can get. He's going to catch us up to be with him. When tends to be a little argumentative among Christians. I'm not going to divide fellowship over that. I just know it's going to happen. He's going to take us up. We're going to meet him in the air to be with him forever. And it says when that happens, we shall not proceed those who are asleep. What is he talking about? He's talking about the bodies are in the ground. They're going to be raised first, changed. There's a purpose for this body, folks. There's a purpose for it. Not only presently, it's for the Lord. But in the future, the Lord is for the body. And it's going to be our immortal, eternal covering one day. It's going to cover our, our, our eternal spirit. And we'll have glorified bodies. That's what it means to be like Him. We'll never be Him. We're not going to be gods. But we're going to be made like Him. Matter of fact, we're going to look at Him one day, look back at ourselves, look at Him, look back at ourselves and say, Whoa! This is what it's been all about all the time, ain't it? So his argument is, why would you demean the very purpose of the body by making foolish choices of immorality? Both present and future, God has a purpose for this body.
Well, I'm running out of time. The third thing, and I won't finish it. <laughs> I'll just get it started and we'll pick it up. Choosing immoral sin is not only harmful, it's not only demeaning, it demeans the whole purpose of what God has for it. It's really slapping him in the face. Choosing immorality is like spitting right in the face of God. But thirdly, choosing immoral sin is, is ignorant. It's just ignorant. And you say, Wayne, why would you say that? Well, I'm not just saying it to be funny. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? May it never be. What are you doing, he says, taking something that God dwells in and attaching it to someone in the act of immorality? What are you doing, he said. Do you not know? Now, here's why I said it's ignorant. They've probably heard from Paul that, I'm sure they have, that Christ lived in them. But the word do not know is, the, is, a, is evo. It's a form of horao. And it doesn't mean do you not know the facts. That's not what he says. You may know the facts, but don't you perceive and understand what the facts are telling you? Are you going to be so careless and calloused as to make immoral choices without any understanding of what your body is now and in the future? Are you doing that? Are you that ignorant that you would make these choices? Whoa. Well, I tell you what, it's like taking a grenade and throwing it right out in our lap. <laughs> I mean, the Apostle Paul has a way of asking the right questions at the right time. He doesn't have to tell them it's all wrong. He just asks the questions and they say, whoa. What they call the Socratean area of being a being of debate. Now, it's, Scripture's divinely inspired. Any wisdom Paul has comes from God. But God evidently chose to use that because he doesn't just come in and blast it. He comes in and says, let me address something here. <laughs> and he walks through it asking the right questions to where you say, golly, why would I do that? Paul says, you got it. And he moves on to something else. That's what he does. Let me ask you a question. Have you made that foolish choice this morning? Have you made that foolish choice? Well, thank God there's forgiveness, there's mercy, and there's grace. But I want to tell you something. If you're here and that choice is in your life and you're not dealing with it, then look out. It's harming you. You don't even know how it's harming you and it's harming others around you. It's demeaning the very purpose for why you were saved. God lives in you and has a purpose for that body one day. But not only that, you're showing your whole ignorance of the fact of what, of what a Christian really is. And I'll tell you one thing. First Corinthians has literally skint me alive. Anybody else in here feel the same way? <laughs> you know, isn't it, isn't it interesting? Some people love to come to church and say, man, give me a rip-roar, you know? And the Holy Spirit of God says, no, I don't think so. Let's get down to where you really live and let's deal with it so that then you can live in the rip-roars. <laughs> Then you can enjoy the rest of it. I heard a guy tell me one time, he says, Wayne, why don't you preach about joy more? <laughs> I thought, good grief, man. Don't you know that joy only comes when you're dead to self and have chosen to say yes to him? The fruit of the Spirit is joy. And the Spirit's not going to work and produce that in your life if you're not willing to die to whatever sin it is and attach yourself to Christ. Take your suspenders off the bumper of immorality and hook them over here to Christ, and you'll find the joy you're looking for. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. 
That's jashow.org.